This is Speaking of Faith's Unheard Cuts. I'm Kate Moose, the program's managing producer. You're listening to Krista Tippett's unedited conversation with artist and angler James Prosek. Krista spoke with him on August 8, 2008, from the studios of American Public Media in St. Paul, Minnesota. James Prosek was in the studios of WSHU in Fairfield, Connecticut. This interview is included in our program, Fishing with Mystery. Download the MP3 of the produced show at Speaking of Faith. Oh, Connecticut. A little bit. Where are you guys? We're in Minnesota. You you sound... sober? Minnesota, yes, exactly. You sound like you're... (laughs) Wait, there you are. A little more of me? Yeah. (laughs) A little echo. Um, I think you're... What a day. (laughs) Really? No, no, it was a good day. I... I helped my sister bring her baby back from the city, and, oh, and she didn't even thank me. <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> she, she is grateful, though. She's, she's grateful. I hope so. She's, just, <laughs> she's distracted. Yeah, she is very much so. <laughs> she's running her business and Having baby. Having her baby, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Boy, it's cold in here. I'm glad I brought my sweater. <laughs> um. Yeah, I'm hearing an echo too. I think your headphones are up quite high. Could that be? Okay. So where are you in Hartford? No, um, let's see. I live in Easton, Connecticut, and I'm actually only like ten minutes from this studio. And this studio, I think, is in Fairfield, Connecticut. Okay. Yeah. All right. But it's right near Bridgeport, which is a major city. Yeah, yeah. No, um, I went to not the- a very nice city, but. I went to the Divinity School at Yale. Oh, yeah. I think I read that in your bio. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that really cool Thomas Jefferson-esque Virginia, University of Virginia-like building, right? The On Divinity campus. School? The break. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's really beautiful. Mm-hmm. It's kind of set I stole apart. a plate. I stole a plate from the dining hall, <laughs> <laughs> which probably isn't good karma stealing from the Divinity School, but... Um, you, I don't think you've heard the show, have you, my show? Well, I have, I have been listening... Um, Online, okay. yeah. Okay. So I'm I'm a little bit familiar with, um, uh, yeah, some of the types of programs. All right. I mean, we do a big range of programs. Um, some of the programs are more religious, and some of them are not. Um, right. I, I when we're doing, I mean, I, I I like to think that kind of the method of the show is what it would call narrative theology. Uh, although right. what we do is not always completely <laughs> theological, but I sort of think about the way what I want to do with you is uh, kind of think talk about it. so 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 the question with that if we're doing narrative theology would be to take a a theological question and answer it through the story of your life or what you mm. know as a scientist or as I think a, it all right? boils down to spirituality in the end yeah, yeah for you so I want to talk to you about the meaning of life the meaning of life as you understand Ooh, it through fishing. a very small topic <laughs> <laughs> can uh, oh can, can I get a little more of everything in my headphones it's a little low for me unless it's going to mess other people up maybe my hearing's just not good yeah, that's better. Okay. Do you um do you go by James? Do people call you James? Yeah, yeah, usually usually James. And say your last name for me. I want to hear how you say it. Um Prosec. Okay. I say Prosec. Yeah, it's Czech. My yep. father's father was born in Prague and okay. my mom was also born in Prague. Right. Uh, mostly a canceled Czech. 
<laughs> I bet I'm the first person you've ever told that joke to. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, Mitch, how are we doing with levels? Do you want me to keep... Do you want to hear him? Do we... Okay. Um, I think we can... By the way, I think it's a... Yeah, I yeah. think it's a really cool forum for discussing this stuff and and faith doesn't have to be connected obviously to formal religion but no but it it's doesn't. it's pretty cool i think i'm <laughs> i'm more interested in it as it runs through life and through perhaps unexpected you know people draw illumination in ways yeah. that are not so traditional or so obvious perhaps how did you come across my work or just just curious um um, one of my producers had read a book or two, and, you know, we're always looking around for interesting voices. Oh, good. And <laughs> it's summertime, and, you know, you, yeah. I think you'd been mentioned before, and then uh, your name came up again, and we did some digging, and we all got pretty excited. Oh, good. Yeah. Digging's good. I was yeah. digging a hole the other day in the backyard. <laughs> <laughs> all right, well, let's start. And we okay. get, and the great thing about this is, uh, uh, it's not, you know, it's not live radio. We get to have a real conversation, and yeah. it doesn't have to be too linear. And we can go back and revisit things. Or super. Okay. All right. Um, hold on one second. Okay. Sorry. I'm back in. Okay. <laughs> okay. Are you ready? Yes. All right. Um. I ask everyone this question, and I, I, I get a sense from what I've read of you that you didn't have um, a real, any kind of formal religious upbringing. But I wanted to ask you, you know, when I ask you, what is the religious or spiritual background of your childhood? What is that noise? Well, is oh, it thunder. Raining? No, it's been, we've had awful, well, oh not awful, gosh. but really severe storms. Yesterday actually was one of the more severe I can storms hear I've ever seen in my life. There was the rain almost looked like it was falling up from the ground. And there were hailstones and stuff. It was wow, very dramatic. I've never heard thunder come through the microphone like that. Okay. Yeah. Well, anyway, well, yeah, I um, I uh, was not raised with any formal religion. Uh, my parents both were raised with some form of Christianity. Um, there was a question when I was born whether or not I would be baptized. And my mom tells me this story that she brought me to the local priest and with my father. And in her story, the priest is smoking cigarettes. I don't know what the significance of that is. <laughs> <laughs> but he said, I won't baptize him unless you guys come to regular services. So they kind of didn't, and I was never baptized. But um, so I, I guess I'm technically nothing. But, and my exposure to regular church services is also kind of limited um although i have been to church before and synagogues and different houses of worship at different times um but i've from a fairly early age i've considered um the theater of nature to be my house of worship and um i've never seen any problem with um enjoying god's creation in his creation um I, I'm also very much a Darwinian. My father sort of raised me that way. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't mean I don't believe in God or creation. But um, so, yeah, I never really mm -hmm. was raised with any formal um, it, religion. It seems like your father was a really formative um, 
person in terms of this passion that you have for the natural world. I mean, that comes through in all your writings. So you, you also say he, he talk about how he used a Portuguese word. That means craziness to describe his his seduction yeah. by the natural world <laughs> and yours. Yeah, well, the, the locura I think is mm-hmm. maybe what you're talking about, kind of a craziness. And his his was for the sea and the stars. That was his um, kind of vehicle into nature. But also birds. Actually, from an early age, he grew up in a suburb of São Paulo, Brazil, and fell in love with nature as a child down there and all the colorful birds that flit around from tree to tree, and he and his brother even would set traps and catch them live in cages for a, a veranda, uh, the, a cage in the veranda of their home. Um, but when he came to this country and when he was 12 years old, he um, he came by ship with his family uh, from Sao Paulo to Brazil, uh, Brazil to um, New York City. And he went on that ship, which happened to be a Norwegian cruise line, he fell in love with the sea, and I think also the Norwegian stewardesses on board but, um, <laughs> right. as a 12-year-old. <laughs> but um, I think uh, from that time on, he always wanted to go to sea. And so when he was of age to go to college, um, he went to a SUNY maritime school called Fort Schuyler, which is on the East River in New York. And, he, you know, it's a Bachelor of Arts education, but he trained as a merchant marine, and he went to sea. And he sailed for about 10 years in a lot of cargo ships from New York to, you know, India, Pakistan, um, throughout the Middle East. So he had a lot of stories growing up about travel and, and it, whether travel, the travel gene is encoded in me or mm-hmm. it's from those early stories. I think my father always kind of encouraged me to travel when I was young as opposed to when I was retired. He said it's not as effective when you're retired <laughs> for whatever reason. But that was his. Um, so, and then it, when he was out at sea, he fell in love with the stars and the constellations and mythology. And so he he's a very much a self-educated um, person. And, and he had very two different, very different sides. One was very pragmatic, wanted me to be an engineer or a doctor and not a poor school teacher, which is what he ended up being. Right. He wanted me to have a regular pretty good income and he felt he never really did I think that was always a source of insecurity for him um, raising a family but um, uh, so he um, but his other side was a very romantic side reading poetry to me and talking about the stars and taking me out at night to look through the telescope at the sky Mm. the night sky um, and also teaching me the names of all the local birds and the birds. trees and things. So and you you painted birds and drew birds when you were young, didn't you? I did. Yeah, mm-hmm. I I started drawing birds when I was maybe four or five years old, and um, early influence were influences were Audubon and Winslow Homer and people like that who had depicted nature the way they saw it. Um, and in a very stylistic and effective ways in my in my mind mm-hmm. but um yes yeah, so. yeah and then so it it sounds like you might have you might have gone on and have been a lover of birds the way your father was but then at, at the age of 9 you were introduced to fishing i mean how what was the story of that how did that exactly happen well yeah it was kind of birds birds had become my vehicle into nature for um, from maybe five until nine years old. And in retrospect, uh, I think the transition 
uh, occurred around the time when my mother left home. Um, she left when I was about nine years old, and I didn't see her for a couple of years. Um, and I kind of, I guess, connected birds and the places that we walked in the woods together with her, associated yeah. with her. So I kind of, the transition's almost like a, a guillotine drop between like <laughs> hmm. my love of birds and then I kind of picked up, um, I fell in love with fish and for whatever reason, um, a particular fish called a trout, <laughs> right. which I'm sure everybody's familiar with, but they're very colorful, um, streamlined, beautiful creatures that live in some of the the most pristine cold water wildernesses that we have left in the world. And they were the trout were kind of the equivalent for to my father's favorite bird, which was a warbler, which is kind of a secretive, colorful little bird that lives in the treetops and migrates from South America. Hmm. Um, so right, you so, say that the trout had a mystique. Uh, what what is that mystique? Is it because, as you say, it lives in these pristine places, or it's harder to yeah, find, harder very, to get to? Yeah, they're they're very difficult to see. I mean, most fish are because the surface of the water reflects our world back to ourselves. And um, unless you're wearing polarized glasses or something, it's hard to see through the waters. But one way to connect to the those mystical creatures living beneath the surface is through angling. And by catching a fish with a hook, you're connected to it and its element through the monofilament line, the pl- this little clear plastic line, which is almost invisible. So, but but the trout in particular, uh, I always felt was a very um, mysterious, mystical fish because they're they're especially spooky. If you walk up to a stream, a pool in a stream, um, and you're not very careful, if you don't crawl up to the bank, they'll immediately disappear and hide under the rocks. <laughs> so it, it's a fish that you can only see if you really kind of know its habitat and um and sort of spend a lot of time in their element uh so yeah that was kind of the mm-hmm. trout was the trout was pretty much my obsession from nine years old until about 28 <laughs> right. and then I kind of I'd painted did a book on the trout of North America which had about 70 um yeah, 70 paintings. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then I did a book on the trout of Europe and Asia mm-hmm. and North Africa. And then I kind of um, felt that I'd said enough about, um, through the depiction of the diversity of these fishes, I'd kind of said what I needed to say for the time being. Um, and then I, but, but that led me, um, the, that exercise in painting the diversity of the trout around the world kind of led me to... Um, to an investigation in my own mind of um, why did I have this compulsion to go out and document all these trout and watercolors and why had people um, named all these fish after themselves and their friends and the places they'd come from. What what did you come up with? I mean, what are some of the answers here? Well, um, the answers are... um, are not necessarily there yet, <laughs> but the I mean, uh, currently I'm I'm working on a book about um, eels, and I think what attracted me to the eel is that it's kind of a it's a creature that inspires spe- fear and awe, 
and reverence in people, like the snake. For some reason, we mm. have a reaction to this mm-hmm. minimalist creature, and um, and it's it's kind of bodiless and nameless. It doesn't really fit into any of the categories that we want it to fit into. Um, humans are really eager to fit nature into neat little boxes and control it, and they can't really live very well with the chaos of nature, which is nature really is chaotic, but the real myth is that the one that the Natural History Museum promotes and in its collections and in its family trees and genealogies is that... Um, that it's ordered. That, yeah, that it's ordered, but the real myth is is the myth of order. Hmm. I mean, if anything, um, what we call mythology, that like an eel in Polynesia um, can take the form of a water guardian um, called a tanifa, to me that's more reality than... Um, the myth of order, um, because magic and and namelessness and what we don't know is so much greater than what we do know hmm. that, I mean, you can call science for trying to order nature uh, or make sense of nature. Um, you could call it arrogant. Um, I would sometimes, but I don't want to be too hard on science because I'm a very science-minded person. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think I've... I've come to investigate these themes about naming and the categorizing of nature and the Linnaean system of classification where every creature in the world is distilled down to this binomial system, genus and species, like like first and last names in humans. Um, of course, we need names to communicate, but um, I think sometimes names can get in the way of of how we view the world and our observations of things. Um, which is, you know, something philosophers have been grappling with for a long time, the limitations of naming. Um, we need names. We require names to have conversations. It's weird if you don't name your dog or your child. Right, <laughs> How right, would you right. identify them? But yet, at the same time, um, people can get lost in the ego of naming and naming things to promote their legacy. There have been taxonomists who've named thousands of beetles in their lifetimes or after or Linnaeus, the Swedish guy who created our system of classification in the 1700s, was apparently a real major operator and egomaniac. And he, <laughs> he would, you know, shamelessly name all kinds of creatures after his biggest patrons and the people who gave him money to do his research. And so it was, you know, it became a more of a human system than anything that really made sense in terms of cataloging nature. Um, but so this is what's been swirling around in my head like a big mm. whirlpool. <laughs> well, I mean, I'm intrigued by that because, you know, as we just said, you're, you're not a t- traditionally or formally religious person, but there are religious ideas and themes and um, evocative ideas that, that echo all the way through your writing. And, you know, in fact, naming, um, the power of naming uh, has a big place um, the in, control of in the Bible and in other and in other religious traditions. This kind of primitive power um, Huge. of giving something a name, or that you know, the, in Australia, the um, the song lines, you know, naming things into being, singing things into being, and yeah, Bruce Chatwin's book, yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, I've <clears throat> yeah, no, it's it's true. I I've been thinking about stuff like the song lines. Because um, I was, through writing this book that I'm working on right now about eels, 
I spent, um, I took two separate trips to New Zealand um, and to other parts of Micronesia and Polynesia to, to try to get traditional stories from the people about eels. Mm-hmm. And um, it's hard for, I think, Western people to understand what these stories mean um, because they're so married to the places where they're told, like um, throughout a story, um, if you're lucky enough to hear one, um, they'll mention places throughout the stories, and the and the stories are almost like a map to the local people. As you learn the story, you learn the places where mm. the different things happen in the stories. So, yeah, naming is a big part of of those stories too. But but there, some of these cultures are a little more sympathetic to nature maybe when they name or maybe that's just my own take on it but I was just in this island in Micronesia called Ponape in March and and there they have for every plant for every fish for every bird they have um, a kind of common name that they use every day and then a magical name that's that's sometimes only known by the medicine people or the people of power the high chiefs that that if you utter that name of that creature, it, it kind of either calls them to action or or produces some effect that the normal name doesn't. Does but, that, so that name kind of contains their or evokes their essence. Drawing. Yes, hmm. yeah. And, and naming um, before Linnaeus, there were people who the naming system really was more of like um, several names. It could have been the local name, the the name that the Western European explorer hmm. gave the thing, and then a whole list of other things. So a name was really more fluid and not as static, but um, Linnaeus's great um, success, I think, the success of that system was that he really cut it down and distilled it to just two names, and um, it made things a lot easier for scientists. But at the same time, he destroyed the spirit of of a lot of these hmm. plants and creatures and and things um it's or, a mm-hmm. it's a compromise you know it's it's but is there something else that you have to do um you know rather than naming are there are there still other ways that you have to um i mean you've written about uh how you kind of press against the limitations of naming with your drawings Right with your yeah. with using curvilinear lines. Oh right. Are there alternatives to? Yeah, I mean, what naming? else do you do, or how do you <coughs> express? How do you work the, with something and take hold of, of it? Uh-huh. Well, I mean, I, I um, I just had an exhibition of paintings, um, and the the title of the show was, um, uh, life and death: a visual taxonomy, and the idea was that. I've spent a good part of my life drawing sort of traditional natural history pictures where you paint a fish and you write its common and scientific names under the fish. We've seen that with botanicals, with anything, you know, these 19th or 18th century painters were doing. So instead of putting the name of the creature beneath the bird, in this case there were mostly paintings of birds, I drew sort of abstract curvilinear lines that were almost like um, flight patterns or something that I personally felt were um, things that helped express my feelings about that creature. Hmm. So that I almost, I kind of created my own taxonomic system, in this case a visual taxonomy because there's no language attached to it. 
and um, to me that that was a better way of expressing the creature than writing its name under it. Uh, other people may not understand that um, particular um, way that I describe them because it's personal, and obviously a personal taxonomy doesn't translate as well as um, a two-name system, but mm-hmm. but it was just kind of a statement about that we take names for granted. Names are there, and we don't often question them. Uh, we just use them, and, and people love names. I love names. I, I have a lot of friends who are bird watchers, and they they love keeping life lists, and they right, check the right. bird off the list, and they move on to the next bird, and it's all about identification. But I think sometimes um, they can turn creatures into a, a golf game or something, you mm. know, and that to me is, mm. I don't know. I'm not going to judge anybody, but it's... It's something, at least, that I'm questioning. That's interesting. But. I'd like to talk a little bit about your um, your pursuit of Isaac Walton's legacy and the book you wrote, The Complete Angler. You also did yeah. a film on that um, and what you learned through that. You note that it's the third most frequently reprinted book in the English language after the Bible and the works of Shakespeare. That's kind of a surprising fact. Yeah, not the first, not the third most... Um, um, not not the most copies in print, but the there are more editions of the right. complete angler than um, it's the third most editioned book. You said <laughs> that library at Yale had ninety editions, right? Oh yeah, at least that was that on. was just the stacks that you could walk hmm. into. But hmm. in the Beinecke Library, the rare book and manuscript library, there are you know hundreds of editions, and all beautifully illustrated. And going back to sixteen fifty three, which is the the first edition. Um, which they have a copy of. And um, so, yeah, Isaac Walton, um, I wrote my senior thesis about Walton, and he wrote this book called The Complete Angler um, in the 17th century, in the mid-17th century, when uh, there was a civil war going on in England, and um, Charles I got his head cut off, and um, his religion, Anglicanism, was being pushed out of London by Cromwell and the Puritans, I mean, to kind of simplify things. Yeah. And so Walton's book, um, The Complete Angler, which is kind of a pastoral fantasy about a guy who goes out fishing from London um, and meets a otter hunter on the way to the stream, and they start having a discourse about their respective passions. The, 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 the fisherman defends fishing and the hunter defends hunting. And the fisherman ends up converting the the hunter, almost a religious conversion, conversion um, to fishing and, and educating him about his passion, which is fishing. And, and the complete angler um, is in part code for the complete Anglican. And it was, <laughs> it's almost like a Civil War polemic. He was, he was trying to very gently express his views about what was going on in the country uh, at, during his time, and what he was advocating in my mind, Isaac Walton was a return from to, a return to pr- primitive Christianity, because mm. he talks about the apostles. Um, one of his first arguments in favor of fishing is that the apostles were fishermen, mm. and that um, Jesus chose fishermen to show his miracles to. He doesn't say that, but I I infer, and I've had conversations about this with friends late at night fishing off the the beach in Rhode Island or wherever, 
about how, you know, why did Jesus go to a fisherman to perform his miracles? Because fishermen know their environment really well. They're not like city dwellers. They're up in the morning with the sun or before the sun. They go to bed with the sun. They know their environment. They know the storms. They know the seas. They know how their boat works. They probably built their boats by hand from local materials. They're totally in tune with nature. So if he comes down to a lake and walks on the water, they know something's going on. Or if he says, cast your nets on the other side of the boat, and there's like a, a sandbar there or something, and they know in a million years they'd never catch a fish there, but all of a sudden there's a, a net load of fish, that they know this guy is something special. But if Jesus went into the city and and did some miracles, they might think he's a joker or something hmm. and not take him seriously. But so, but anyway, that's that's I, sort of tangential. Well, <laughs> I don't know, but it's not. I mean, it's interesting because I mean, you, there is this parallel that you that you demonstrate in in what you wrote after that 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 um, Walden is making is drawing this parallel between the qu- qualities that make a good angler and that make a good Christian. I mean, not just yeah. that that symbolism and that 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 fish and fishing run all the way through the New Testament. Um, yeah, and that they're gentle people who follow peace and. Um, and he was sort of advocating, you know, this, like I said, this return to primitive Christianity, which in which he meant, um, look, guys, we don't need we don't need these chapels and churches and buildings to worship in or to we fight go, over. In his, yeah, or to fight over. Day, yeah. We can we can worship whatever we want to worship in a cave, in a canyon and by a stream. And he felt that um, that um, it, Although he and his friends were being pushed out of, um, I guess the phone's ringing. <laughs> Where's that? Where you are? Yeah. Oh. Although he and his friends were being pushed out of um, out of London and their places of work and worship, like his good friend, the poet and sermonizer John Donne, mm-hmm. that they could still practice Christianity in the fields and in the woods and in the pastures and by the stream. And that's, I mean looking at it now i i think um that's the success of christianity too is that it's very it's a very portable religion you can take christianity um really anywhere in a in a prison in a in a in a hospital in a cave in a in a in a church in in the city in the country because it rests on the sacrifice of a human being whereas these the indigenous faiths around the world, like in Polynesia, um, they're completely connected to um, to creatures that live in the environment. And if you, if you fragment nature too much, if you take the creatures away, if the eel becomes extinct, then you've erased the sense of awe and wonder that the foundation of the faith rests on. Mm. And mm. they're completely not portable. You can't take um, the, the Maori religion in New Zealand and superimpose it on the Inuits in Alaska. It doesn't mm. work. Mm. You know, it's not. But Yeah, and I mean, you, it seems to me that, now you were, were you a junior, senior in college when you were, when you went to England following in Walton's footsteps, kind of pursuing him and his personality and the places he, he fished? Yeah, I got a travel fellowship between my junior and senior between year junior to senior. Mm-hmm. yeah to go in the in the footsteps of Isaac Walton through England and yeah. and I'd applied for a couple other travel fellowships like I wanted to go to eastern Turkey yeah 
um, to look for trout um, in the headwaters of the Tigris and Euphrates because I'd read in Milton's Paradise Lost that that there were there was a spring that bubbled forth near the Tree of Life in the Garden of Eden that was the headwaters of the Tigris River, and I thought, oh, there must be trout there, <laughs> and it's sort of in the in the begin in the the old Garden of Eden, mm. and that of course the trout survived the flood because. You know, they don't really talk about the fish and the flood, but of course they must have all survived. <laughs> they were the ones that didn't have to get narrowed down, right? <laughs> they didn't have to get in the boat, <laughs> unless right. it was a big fishbowl. <laughs> so I thought it would be cool to catch trout hmm. in the region where Eden was historically, but they didn't sort of go for that, the Travel Fellowship Committee. <laughs> but but Walton made more sense for my senior thesis mm-hmm. as an English literature major. And really, you ended up, I feel, that there's a lot of... Now, as you said, Walton's own exploration of angling was um, very much connected with his theology and <clears throat> with his ideas about God and religion. And, I mean, you also did a fair amount of theological reflection. I mean, that comes through in the book. Um, you know, you you uh, you talk... Here's a place where you, where you really went pretty far into this idea. You were reflecting on... Um, on Walton's ideas, and you found books that he'd read and passages he'd underlined, and a passage about mm-hmm. God denying our demands as the divinest way of granting them. Yeah, I like punishment. <laughs> <laughs> but that first, I mean, it kind of surprises me that a junior in college, um, well, I mean, you were having pretty big thoughts about what that meant, I think, how you understood I think that. My, I think my thoughts were ahead of my ability to... <sighs> write them down and I I think that those books like The Complete Angler and Fly Fishing the 41st Parallel Mm -hmm. are I think the concepts are more successful than the execution (laughs) but I'm not saying I hate them as books but Mm -hmm. um, but I I do I've always been thinking about this stuff spirituality has been a huge part of my life or why we're here it's really I don't even really think on the everyday level if you I mean I'm always kind of in space or <laughs> thinking about these things, but I, I don't know why. I also, I also as, a, as a sophomore in college, I started writing this epic poem that was kind of my version of Paradise Lost, and it was about a modern-day Adam and Eve that lived in New York City, and, uh, like, a couple. Uh, and um, I'm trying to remember the storyline now. <laughs> but, um, but so God... Um, had banished um, man from paradise to earth because of what Satan had done, um, um, seducing Eve into eating the forbidden fruit and all that stuff. Um, but in this in this story, uh, that was actually part of God's plan, that God ultimately meant for man to live on earth, not in paradise, and that Satan was actually just a pawn in the whole thing, you know. And Satan thought he was doing evil, but really he was just <laughs> okay. God's pawn. Right. So, um, so God tells him this, or the angels kind of joke around there, and they're talking, and he overhears them that he was just uh, he was just sort of uh, being used in this whole ploy. So he gets really mad because he wants to believe that he, what he is doing in his own existence is of his own free will, but really he's just been God's puppet all along. So he resolves to lead man back to paradise to get back at God because they were never supposed to live in paradise. <laughs> so he and the the sort of angels trick him into believing that he can do this by 
drinking the milk of you know from the woman or something it was really mm. convoluted but <laughs> but anyway it's something i was thinking about i was like why would god put us in a perfect place i could never understand that i, I mean i have i've had a decent life we all have our ups and downs but i really i really think contrast is what makes virtue apparent and if we didn't have the lows we wouldn't have the highs but a lot of people might say well that's only because of the system we're living in here on earth and if we were in paradise you wouldn't think that way but mm. who knows i mm. mean i don't know those were i mean the word the very lofty word immortality is something that you is a word you use in the context of fishing and what you think about while fishing and learn through fishing i mean talk to me about yeah. that well i think um at some point in my life fishing was a way of achieving a timelessness because um especially fishing in rivers because rivers have a very timeless quality they're always flowing 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 unless they're dry of course but they're flowing down to the sea the clouds form they float over the countryside the rain falls they fill up the the ground the the springs the whatever the stream the stream is kind of this immortal entity at least in in my mind so as a fisherman fishing in a stream oftentimes you're standing in the stream you see a reflection in the stream and you kind of get swept up in this immortal cycle and and kind of lose yourself hmm. and uh, hmm. so i don't know that was always something i used to think about um but there's different things that that sort of stop thought thoughts and stop time and really for me now i mean i do fish uh i still fish but it doesn't do the same thing it did for me when I was nine or fourteen or a young younger person. But mm -hmm. creativity is really my faith. That's my way of stopping time and thought processes. And to get there, uh, it takes really hard work for me sitting in the studio, sometimes not painting anything all day, but just trying to get into that place where. I can connect to what my mother calls the pipeline, <laughs> you know, the, and she always said to me that creativity was God's gift to us. He is the creator and um, that we're closest to God when we are, when we're creating, or maybe she meant that just mm -hmm. for me because I always love to draw and, and that's really when I feel closest to God is when I'm making something, whether mm -hmm. it's with my hands or with my voice. I love, I love I mean, painting is, is, is fairly paramount in my life, and hmm. but also the writing and also music. I love playing music and, and singing and making up songs. And, um, but, but anyway. Hmm. Um, I mean, I'm really, I'm really, I, I like what your mother said. I, I'm really intrigued also. I, I like to think about if, um, if, if God is creative and, and then when we are creative, um, then I would think we would be learning. I, 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 f I feel theologically that we might take aspects of human experience more seriously as educational about the nature of God if we really take this stuff seriously, right? So, so let me ask you the question this way. I mean, yeah. what, what, do you, what do you learn? You know, do you think there are things you sense about the nature of God through uh, the creative process? Like who you are then, what qualities that evokes, how you live differently, do I think that 
what can you try phrasing it yeah. one other way? <laughs> yeah. Do you um do you, if if God if God is is the creator and and then being creator is somehow um, sharing some of that essence or knowing yes. some what what do you know what do you what do you feel you know through that experience? Um, what I feel I know through that experience um, is that that gift of creativity is um, really powerful and. Uh, when I'm connected, when I when I lose myself, when I forget where I am while I'm painting or something, it's it's just really I don't know. It's it's really what I kind of live for in a way, and I don't know if if there were something I believed in in terms of another place or another person or a creator or something. That's when I most believe in it. I always believe in it, but whatever it is but mm-hmm. <laughs> um am i am i understanding correctly yeah. what you think yeah or uh, how do you imagine like let's say you weren't very convinced with the god you heard about who was mm. worshiped in churches mm-hmm. when you were a kid <laughs> so because of being well i think first of all your experience in nature which you've said is what did you say that the trout stream is like a temple to you the trout stream yeah. was your temple okay so for from that but then also from being a creative person, perhaps this idea of God has different qualities in your mind. You feel that those have been a window to seeing something different than that God who resided in church buildings. Yeah. I Well, first of all, I, if I'm going to be in a, a building, I'd like to build it myself. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't necessarily like the types of buildings that God is worshipped in. Um some churches are nice, but so I, I'm a very particular, I'm obsessive, kind of compulsive, and I. So the space has to be right if I'm gonna mm. kind of be into that whole organized thing. I have no, I have nothing against it. I've, I'm not, you know, but I, I just don't like, I don't like sitting in there. I don't feel close to anything in that space. Uh, I do sometimes, but it's more about the people. Um, but if if I don't like the figure who's talking to me, then I can't connect. And, and I don't necessarily do well with authority or people telling me what to do. Mm. But I feel like I have my own system that works. And I, I'm i also sort of a fairly superstitious person. And um, I don't feel like I would be punished for not going somewhere once a week because I I feel like I'm a good person. I feel like I'm extremely grateful for the the gifts I have for whatever I've been given um and my way of connecting with that spiritual force that I call God and that many of us call God is through being either being in nature or being in my space that I've made for myself making stuff um making stuff with my hands um like painting just tactile quality of yeah mm-hmm. even just running a pencil across the paper i mean i write i keep a journal very religiously mm-hmm. <laughs> um and it's it's not so much what i'm writing in it but just just the act of like kind of putting the pen or pencil on the paper i don't know why that is so pleasing to me but i also have a compulsion to write but um making a mark on on that paper is really um, important to me. 
And I write on a computer too, but I I don't know. I I may be going nowhere with this thought. No, but, no. <laughs> but what does it but, tell you about God? I mean, does it is it also pleasing to God? Do you feel do, for oof, you to make that mark? I can't on say that. that. Uh-huh. <laughs> um. Well, I I do look for kind of affirmations from uh, the universe or whatever. Am I am I going in the right direction? Am I being a good human? Um, am I am I being disrespectful to God by not going to a house of worship? I think about those things, but I'd like to think that I am doing something that would please uh, that force when I'm um, trying to um, disseminate the virtues of his creation, you know, like um, I'll paint something that looks like something in nature and hope that, you know, some kid or something will look at it and be inspired to maybe try to protect nature, even Mm. though, you know, the planet's probably headed down the toilet, but... Um, I s- you still have to try. Um, I believe in conservation. I mean, even, uh, you know, that's sort of also something spiritual for me. But hmm. I don't know whether God's pleased with what I'm doing or not. I I can't really say. But um, if he weren't, maybe he'd put a stop to it. But hmm. there, have been, there have been things that have happened in my life that I just have been very fortunate you know, getting a book published while I'm still in college so I could keep doing this stuff. Right. I, although I, if I hadn't published that book, I'd probably be an architect right now or, or a painter maybe, but hmm. maybe I'd be happier. Well, you are <laughs> but, a painter. Um, <laughs> yeah, I am a painter. Yeah. But. I mean, you, you know, you use um, these words when you talk about qualities of life, virtues, that I don't know if you use the word virtues, but you talked about them in the context of Isaac Walton and also yourself, um, words like con- <clears throat> content, being content, simple, quiet. Mm-hmm. Those are kind of, um, they kind of have an old-fashioned ring to them, <laughs> you know? Um, yeah. But you, you, they are virtues, and I would call them virtues, that you that you do seem to have cultivated in on many levels. Yeah, I do. I mean, I tried to be um, contemplative and simple in, in the way that um, I'm probably not simple, but <laughs> I don't know. I mean, You're kind of complicated used, at the same time. <laughs> yeah, Walton used the word simple. Um, I don't know what exactly he meant by it, but I think he meant just maybe not requiring a whole lot or appreciating what you have um i do i guess require a lot in my life i I, um but um yeah i mean great gratitude too is important but i i certainly don't judge people on um the things that society seems to judge them on and it it may go back to naming too i mean people have business cards and their titles on business cards and vice president of this and baloney of that and like i somebody who like my my good friend joe haynes who um caught me fishing illegally when i was a kid in a local reservoir and became kind of an outdoor mentor he never finished high school he never you know did the things that modern society may kind of think of as a successful person but to me he's he's just an infinitely beautiful creature and i just 
admire that what he's done with his life so much but there are societal pressures and to get degrees and all this stuff you know and i've i've run through the gamut i went to college whatever i i didn't feel i need to go to graduate school but um but i guess i mean i've always been kind of a self-contained unit even as a kid i i'd sit at the kitchen table and draw all day and i didn't really seem to need anybody Hmm. but um at the same time i'm a fairly gregarious person and i like people (laughs) i like people a lot but and I mean, you wrote a book about about Joe Haynes and your friendship with him and fishing. And and I did want to ask you about that connection (coughs) that you discerned and that you really have elaborated on between fishing and friendship. Yeah. What is that? What is that? Um, Well, I mean, I don't know if I would have said this when I wrote the book about Joe um, called Joe and Me, but... Uh, I think it really goes back to a some kind of predatory thing. Like um, we evolved to catch or grow our own food. It's only recently that we've been able to get our food from grocery stores and stuff. Yeah. We're foragers and we're hunters, and um, the predatory the predatory instinct is still very much inside of us and in my mind anyway so i mean that's why i feel like i i like to fish uh because the pursuit and capture of something is is in our genetic fabric and um it's also why i think i like to draw because i think drawing was a predatory impulse the people drew these creatures on cave walls i think in part to learn more about them when you draw something you're forced to observe some Hmm. observe something very closely Hmm. and um it may have made us more efficient predators to have sketched them out on the walls figured out the most efficient place to throw the spear or whatever weapon was being used but i don't Um, i don't necessarily put predatory and with friendship and friendship together i'm getting there yeah okay (laughs) (laughs) So what but what I was going to say is that I think camaraderie is also a hmm. part of the hmm. the predatory process being out in nature with other humans um at night on the water I think especially at night the the senses are really heightened and um f- some of my greatest memories with Joe Haynes was fishing off the beach in Fairfield Connecticut um in the surf when there was a surf at night and and you, a lot of your senses are sort of shut down you can't see as well but i i've you know i've at different times i felt a closeness with him also i think i mean sharing is a big part of survival yeah. joe haynes has you know has always kind of said you know one hand washes the other he's got this sort of yankee thing about him that um you know um you sort of give a bucket of clams to somebody and they in return will give you something back and it's and when you're in barter a barter economy yeah, yeah a barter economy and mm-hmm. when you're in a hard place um those people will help you survive and they'll pick you up and i think when we first met i may have been in a hard place my mom had left home and all that stuff and and he knew sort of peripherally about me through cuz i grew up on the street where his wife grew up and his wife's family sort of knew my family so when he caught me fishing in this local reservoir 
um, he he kind of took me under his wing also because he'd lost something in his life. His son had just moved to Colorado for whatever reason at a fairly young age. He sort of took off. Right. So um, I kind of took – we both had sort of a need for each other at that time, and I think that's partly why we connected so well. But, um, yeah, I mean, there's something about going out in nature with your buddy and, and fishing or hunting – and that I think is very fundamental and visceral, and um, it cements a friendship in a different way than other types of friendships. You know, something that's striking to me um, reading the book, your book about Joe, Joe, Joe and mm-hmm. me, and education mm-hmm. and fishing and friendship, is also because um, what I'm trying to tease out, or what I'm interested in teasing out, is spiritual insights that come through these experiences you've had, right. you've dwelt on, and. There's a pace to the story, to the book, to the writing, to the experiences. It's not this dramatic, dramatic narrative arc yeah. that we're used to in no. books or entertainment or just, you know, the way we even think about what a story is. Nothing big happens. The early, right. <laughs> there's this kind of ordinary, there aren't, there aren't great big highs, there aren't great big lows, and yet there's kind of this, this sanctified, ordinary life. Yeah, I'm really into ordinary experience, but experiences, but I think in ordinary everyday life if you're listening, there are majorly extraordinary things that happen. Um and I think that's how where magic comes from and different things. Uh I'm being very vague, but Yeah, but what maybe, do you mean when you say <laughs> magic? What does that word mean for you? Well, um I don't know. I I think I spending time with these Maori people in New Zealand kind of changed my worldview a little bit. Like um, there, uh, when I first arrived doing to do research on eels and Maori culture, I drove from Auckland down to Hamilton, the next big town south, and there was this construction project that was stalling traffic, and. I eventually found out that um that this um site this construction site had been abandoned by most of the the blue collar workers down there in Maori the Polynesians and um they had fled the site because one of the workers had pulled up at this giant eel in the bucket of the um the bulldozer cuz they were digging in a swamp there basically there's a swamp that the highway has gone around um, for a long time, there have been a lot of accidents because there's a tight curve in the road. But the the uh, the Maori said, don't straighten the highway. The government wanted to straighten the highway through the swamp because it would make it easier. But they said, no, don't do it. There's a there's a tanifa, there's a water monster living in the stream. And um, so they went ahead with the project anyway, and then one of the workers pulled up this giant eel in the river and they said that's the tanifa and they all went away and they couldn't get anybody to come back to the site so it was weird to me that in this day in contemporary life that a water monster what we would call a a mythical creature could stall traffic um, or stop construction but down there magic was part of ordinary life for the Maori still Mm -hmm. maybe because New Zealand's so far away from the rest of the world um, the quote-unquote civilized world. Okay. Um, but but I think magic is there if you want it to be there, and if you don't, then it's not in your life. And 
I don't know, you know, just going out fishing sometimes you see things that um, are kind of magical and you can, if you're receptive and open, you see them. And if you're not, you don't. But um, I'm not I know you sure said there's a There's a line that I wrote that I copied from, um, let me just find it, from... Uh, I'll find it. Oh, here this is from. I, I guess this was in. I think it was from your, the introduction to your book about trout. Um, your first book, the instructive nature of the trout stream is not forced upon its visitors, but held candidly by the water and the trees. Mm. The angler <laughs> must make an effort to hear the stream's messages and see her beauty. Wow, at least I'm a little bit consistent. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's lovely. Um, yeah, I, I, s- hmm. Yeah, I mean, in some ways, I feel like I was more connected when I was the age when I wrote that, like 17 or 18, than I am now, because mm. all this other stuff kind of barrels into your life. But, um, yeah, it's it's true. I mean, if if you're not if you're not listening, you're not going to hear it, you know. Um, but I try to listen um, to what I mean to. Um, the spirit of the creator that's talking to you, that's feeding you ideas, that's comforting you or pummeling you or whatever. I mean, nature is what we live in. And I, you know, I, I don't know. (laughs) You, you know, you talk about trout, um, the way I've heard people talk about, Snowflakes, you know, be so amazed that no, no snow, no two snowflakes are exactly alike, right? No. I mean, people have seen that under a microscope, but you also talk about how every trout is beautiful, and it's and well, completely distinct in its own way. Just like us, I mean, every human being is distinct. Every single trout um, is is individual and has its own spotting pattern, its own even personality if you spend enough time with the trout but um, or any creature. But I think that, coming back to the naming thing, that's yeah. sort of the some of the limitations of naming. I When I was doing the research on the trout, I, I became very interested in the history of how these fish were, quote-unquote, discovered... Um, by western people you know who came in like one of the people who named a lot of the western trout was this guy david star jordan who was the first president of stanford university in california and he he named uh the golden trout of the sierra nevada mountains um salmo agua bonita pretty water and um and i loved these stories behind the names that people gave them but as I traveled more, and I, actually when I did the first book, a lot of the fish I painted from photographs or descriptions that other people had painted because I hadn't seen all the trout myself. Uh. Whereas the second book that I did on the trout of the world, I traveled through Europe and Asia, through Central Asia and Eastern Asia, looking for the last native trout. There's only They're only left in a few high headwaters of the rivers. And a lot of these fish hadn't been named, hadn't been quote-unquote discovered, hadn't been written about. And I, I started comparing that to the ones in North America that had been you know, heavily studied and 
I'm like every every stream you're in, the fish look different. I mean, hmm. if you really got down to it, on even the if they have the same name, you're saying it's yeah, yeah. Even on the on the subspecies level, there's names are just not adequate enough to hmm. describe the diversity of life on Earth. Hmm. I mean, should we abandon names? I, I don't think we can, but um, they're severely limited. They're even their behavioral differences, their genetic differences between these fish. Are you going to give them all a name? You can't really. I mean, why not leave some things nameless? And hmm. Um, hmm. I think uh, namelessness has a beauty, too, that something has been left alone. Hmm. Um, but I, I sort of grew up with an urge to name. When I f- did my first drawings as a kid, I, I distinctly remember, like, drawing a bird and asking my mom to write the name of the bird under it. it so, I mean, it, it's it's yeah. got to be something. It's just fundamental it's to being us. human. Yeah. But um, but I try to I try to resist it and 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 just experience things. But um, hmm. I mean, you you have kind of been bringing together your um, this kind of concern that you have and your love of fish and uh, trout in particular, and also your painting in this project you've been doing with um, the founder of Patagonia. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, how does he say his name? Is it Yvonne? Or yeah, Yvonne Chouinard. Yvonne Chouinard. Yeah, Yvonne. yeah. Mm-hmm. so you you were fishing with him in Yellowstone, and you, you <coughs> hatched this idea? Yeah, I mean, Yvonne's... And there's Yvonne's that friendship a, connection again, I guess. Yeah, he's a, he's a real visionary. I mean, he... The idea of having a company that's worth three hundred million dollars, and um, he started this one percent for the planet thing, where big companies give away one percent of their profits to to conservation. And, mm-hmm. um, he's he um, so yeah. I was fishing with Yvonne in Yellowstone Park. I've been involved with this conservation group called the, the Yellowstone Park Foundation for about ten years, and we were on a trip to help raise money for the park and stuff bringing different people fishing and <laughs> asking them for money. <laughs> right. <laughs> and uh, so um, so we were sitting by the fireplace one night in this beautiful ranch called Silver Tip Ranch in, in Montana near the park. And he's like, oh, I've been thinking about for years about maybe using some of your art on T-shirts um, for conservation. And, and we sort of talked about, um, yeah, putting paintings of trout on T-shirts and um, raising money and giving the money away to um, grassroots organizations or even individuals who were doing uh, great work to not only preserve trout but preserve cold water resources. And, you know, preserving trout is not um, not as maybe small-minded as it seems it's um, because it's really about preserving clean water, but um, but but yeah, it's been I mean fairly successful. We've raised about two hundred fifty thousand dollars in the last three years, and given it away. And even through the money we've given away, there have been organizations that have been started, like the Balkan Trout Restoration Group, hmm. that tries to um, preserve all these different genetic varieties, d- diverse varieties of of trout in Bosnia, Croatia, Serbia, hmm. Montenegro. So it's, it's um, called World Trout is this initiative. Yeah. And you, I mean, you said that it's, you, you do, you don't 
you're not starting a new project, but you're identifying groups or individuals who are protecting native fish, and you're supporting their efforts. Yeah, but if we have to start a new group, we will. <laughs> okay. Uh, or encourage people to to start a new, um, you know, restoration group or organization. It's really, yeah, about encouraging people who are doing good work to keep doing it. And um, and and Yvonne and myself too both believe in giving money not only to big groups like the Nature Conservancy, but to mm-hmm. s- to smaller grassroots organizations that can do a lot locally. You know, think local, locally, act globally, that kind of philosophy. Um, and I, I mean, really fundamentally what it's about is, for me, preserving diversity of fishes or whatever around the world is preserving the sources of our awe and inspiration. If everything really comes out of nature, I mean, even the most abstract expressionist painting even a black canvas is derived from our experiences in nature. If we lose the creatures that form the foundation of our spiritual systems, if we lose the creatures that inspire us to be spiritual at all, then we will be really lost people with no no food for our imaginations, <laughs> nothing. And that's really what um, what it's all about is is keeping um, our spiritual sustenance uh, alive. So I mean that's that's kind of my thing. So your I mean your concern with sustainability is not just as you said that this is also about clean water and but it's about it's about our spirits as well. It's really about it's really about yeah. food um, for the imagination. I it's like the that. human. It's about the human imagination more than anything else. Clean water, whatever. If the water's gone, we're gone. The earth doesn't give a crap. It'll burp us up, and that's it. You know, <laughs> realistically. Mm-hmm. But I mean, in our short little lives. Um, that we think are so important but really aren't. Um, I think it's important from one generation to the next to preserve these things and because uh, they've been important to me. I only know from my experiences, um, but I, I really I believe strongly in that. Um, okay. If we fragment nature to the point where birds don't make their migrations anymore and things don't move, um, you know, the earth could stop spinning you know like in Ponape this this island I was in in Micronesia the people believe that if you take the eels out of the streams the water will stop moving because it's the movement of the eels that keeps the rivers Mm. flowing Mm. and in a way I think like the earth spins because things move nothing is static nothing can fit in a box everything's moving everything's migrating Um, even humans I mean we may live in the same town our whole lives but if the motion of the world stops if the rivers stop flowing if the creatures stop moving then it's just going to be really bad <laughs> that's all <laughs> I, uh, a, there won't be any god anymore i mean that's mm-hmm. for sure it's a pretty if big there's statement. no humans there's no god hmm. well that may be dumb to say but i don't know well, i said it i'm going to let you say <laughs> it um i want to wind down and I I have a couple more questions for you but I want to be quiet for a minute and ask my colleagues behind the glass if if they you know there are questions that have occurred to them or follow up so I'm going to be quiet for a minute while I'm listening in my headphones
about what? What? I don't know if I read that article. <laughs> oh, right. Ivy. Re- yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't know. That may take us too far afield. It's a good question. Oh, I'm willing to go there. <laughs> <laughs> Wherever it is. I'm just joking. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. All right. Um, yeah. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, you know, as we've talked about these, um, these, um, you know, some of the s- spiritual implications or insights that you've drawn from fishing in particular, um, there, there's also something I think that human beings, you just, we were just talking about this impulse that we have to name things. And I also think we have this impulse to ritual. And mm-hmm. we, we, oh, re, yeah. we recreate <clears throat> that. If, if it, I mean, we've kind of done away with rituals in Western culture, but we reinvent sad, it. Sad, sad. Yeah, but, but, you know, we, can, we continually, we make it again because we need it. And there's, there's real ritual to fishing. I mean, even just the children's book that you did, you know, where you, yeah. you know, where you have the all the, box. all the, yeah, the tackle box, all the pieces. I mean, there's something. I'm not a person who's ever done much fishing, but there's something so thrilling about that. Uh, and I think it is. It does speak to that. I mean, is that something you've thought about? I have thought about. Yeah, I mean, I I was talking about ritual recently. Uh, um, a friend died, and we had a very informal memorial by the beach and um, stuck a few candles in the sand and lit them and then the candles went out because the wind blew and so we lit the the candles again and then the candles went out again and then um, and then we put up a wind barrier and um, we got the candles to stay on and we all shared um, stories about this guy Brooks who died and um and then at the end of what we were doing um this raccoon came right up onto the rock above where the candles were and it it was this raccoon that he'd been feeding like before he died up by the beach (laughs) it was really funny i mean it's almost like rocky the raccoon had come to say goodbye but (laughs) but i was thinking about the whole the whole candle thing i mean lighting a candle is such a a fantastic ritual and it's there's something about fire that's so amazing and um i said to my friends like we don't have enough ritual in our lives huh. these days and um it's something i've been thinking about a lot lately and as a kid yeah i think the ritual even in the winter of i would in the winter as again i'm sort of an obsessive person but i used to like take every one of my lures out of the box 
wash them, dry them, and put them back in the box. And taking an inventory of my tackle Mm -hmm. was a significant ritual. And um, tying flies for the coming season was a a ritual. Um, I think, again, in the process of predation, there were a lot of rituals. There was the investigation in our minds of what the hunt was going to be about. There was the drawing on the cave walls, if that was related at all to predation. It may not have been. But um, I think that um, as we become disconnected from nature, uh, we lose a lot of the ritual. Um, And we, you know, we don't even necessarily eat dinner together as a family or, Mm -hmm. I I mean, I, I think in my, in my daily life, um, putting out my paints on the palette (laughs) is a ritual for me. Like, lining up the colors the way I like them. Um, that's kind of my my daily ritual. Um, even making a cup of coffee is yeah. a really, really spiritual experience, <laughs> especially if you grind the beans yourself. <laughs> yeah. But, um, <laughs> I but mean, yeah, laughing, I, but I, it's true. It's a ritual that a lot of us have in our daily yeah. lives. And, yeah, uh, but ritual is, is really important. Um, so, and, I mean, here's another question we've talked about. You've talked about naming as, as kind of as mm, capturing something, perhaps narrowing it, and um, you know, you it. you catch fish, right? And you mm-hmm. eat, you kill fish, and you eat fish, mm-hmm. and you paint fish. Yeah. Um, I, I, you know, I I actually was thinking about this when I was preparing to interview you and reading your writing, and I was thinking about an Ojibwe. Um, man, I listened to some oh, of that. Did yeah. you? Yeah, and how he talked about the kind of sacred relationship. That I means hunting and fishing is really oh. critical to their to his identity. Oh, huge! Yeah, right. But the, and there's this relationship which sounds kind of counterintuitive, at least I don't know, in a 21st century American yes. vocabulary to talk about how you honor the fish by by how you kill them and how you eat them and yes. prepare them and. Um, yeah, how do you think about your relationship to that comes? Well, yeah, I've been thinking lately. <laughs> again, it comes back to predation. That I've, I, I mean, I as I grew up totally like catch and release fisherman. I used to let go all the fish that I caught, and when I met Joe Haynes, the game warden, <laughs> he. He he f- claimed to be fishing strictly for the pot that right. he was he was fishing for his refrigerator, <laughs> or his freezer, or the frying pan, and I never really understood that until more recently. Um, and some catch and release fly fishermen may want to kill me when I say this, but I sort of feel that it's a little weird to just catch a fish, bring it in, take the hook out, and let it go. It's I understand why we do it though, because it's it's like play acting at predation without actually right. killing something. It's not a matter but, of survival, or no. Mm-hmm. But lately, I've found it's much more satisfying to go out, catch what you need for dinner, and stop and and look around and enjoy the 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 stream. Don't make it into a game like how many fish can I catch? Can I catch the biggest fish? You know, am I gonna check this off my list that I caught a ten pound this or whatever? That I I and I really um, enjoy that foraging thing. I'll go out and hmm. get if it's spring, I'll dig up some wild leeks, 
and fry them with the trout. And I found that a, a cast there's nothing like a cast iron pan for frying trout. <laughs> mm. But um, the simpler the better. A little butter, whatever. And, and Walton, when in Isaac Walton's book in the Complete Angler, you can like your mouth starts watering when he talks about how to cook the fish. There's recipes in there and all kinds of usually involving like sewing a pound of butter into the cavity of the fish and <laughs> um but um I think it's all part of the ritual it's and you know cooking um like fly fishing is kind of really um developed into a high art um a really high um kind of we've 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 sort of um, exaggerated different parts of the predatory ritual, um, cooking, you know, mm-hmm. making things unnecessarily good. I don't, I like <laughs> good food, <laughs> right. but, um, and fishing for them into a really intense ritual. There's some fly fishermen who are really obsessed with all the, learning all the species of insects that lives in, in the river. And that's all great. But yeah, for some reason, the hunting has received, um, really bad rap lately, but um, I'm not a big hunter. I don't necessarily enjoy killing things, but um, in the fall, I'll go out with a friend and his dog bird hunting, you know, for pheasants yeah. or maybe for a turkey, and you kill... I Whenever I kill the thing, I get on the ground, and I kind of just put my head to the earth, and it may sound corny, but I sort of... I say thank you, and... Um, will pluck or skin the thing and and cook it and eat it and um there is some primal satisfaction to that and it and it's a way of knowing nature that's that's different um many of us eat things that have been killed by other people or by machines um and we don't think twice about it but yet um killing it yourself somehow is is bad you know, I don't know mm-hmm. I'm not I'm not defending hunting either and there are people who are excessive about it but right. but I do I do enjoy it and it's part of the whole ritual and I mean you're saying there's I mean I do I think I hear you saying that you do experience even if you can't really explain it or even to yeah. yourself there's it's not bad that there's something honorable about it or something that may be the way we justify it to ourselves but um, it is yeah the process of of killing and preparing and eating it is honorable. It becomes part of ourselves. Its energy becomes part of us. Um, and, um, um, yeah, I, I don't see anything bad in it. That's mm-hmm. that's all I can say, really. Okay. But, yeah, um, I don't know if I answered your question. Yeah, no, you did. <laughs> so how old are you now? I'm 33. Okay. I mean, you've done a lot. Um, really, I hope uh, in thirty-three thank you. years, and I mean, you're doing a lot all the time. I, you wrote that your first book, which was also, you know, it was a really about the pictures, but it was also, I mean, the introduction to that book about trout that you published when you were in college is beautiful. I had a really good editor. Oh, <laughs> it's really wise, and um, and you've written how many books have you published? Eight or nine. I have eight books eight right books. now, yeah. And you you paint, and you've been exhibited, and you won a Peabody Award and um, for the film that you did on the Isaac So Walton. did you. So did I, <laughs> yes. I know, I'm very proud. That's great. Yeah. Um, 
I just, I wonder if you kind of look back at what you were, because you were writing really profound things, um, not just about fishing, but about contemplation and immortality and life and death when you were 18, 19, 20, 21. I mean, mm, when you look look at that or think about it, I mean, what what have you what are you learning now at thirty three um, that adds to that that refines it? Well, um, like I mentioned maybe before, I don't know if my tools for expressing what I wanted to express were there at at nineteen or twenty or even like the review of the Complete Angler in the Times made some comment about. You know, the theological stuff isn't quite there, but, you know, some of the fishing stuff's nice, <laughs> you know. But I wanted, there's things I wanted so badly to say and I felt so strongly about. Mm-hmm. And this book I'm writing about eels, I've been researching for eight years, and it's obviously not the only thing I've been working on for eight years, but it's been a real struggle writing this book because I want it to make sense. And there's some really big, what I believe are big themes in the book that I want to come across, like about indigenous faiths. And when I started the book, I was more interested in the life history of the fish eight years ago, but I didn't even know that eels were important to Polynesians or Micronesians. Or But now that's become the biggest part of the story. Um, but the eel also has a mysterious life history. No, no human has ever witnessed an eel spawning. They, they reproduce in the middle of the ocean hmm. and spend their lives in fresh water. I mean, I'm I'm into mystery. I'm into a fish that that has um, kept its mystery from humans. I mean, how many creatures have done that in this day and age? <laughs> hmm. um, I think the world is changing. When I when I did that book, the forty first parallel traveling around the latitude line of my home, things were really different ten years ago. Yeah. I mean. People didn't have the internet. They didn't have. I don't even think I had an email address ten years ago. Right. And um, I think exploration has sort of died with the, sh- the shrinking of the world. So, what is there left to to talk about? I mean, you can't just write a, a dumb travel narrative about. Yeah, I'm not saying you know whatever, yeah. but it's it's not as novel to go anywhere as it was in the 18th century or the 19th century. So what's left? I mean, the meaning of life, I guess. But I I have things I want to say, whether or not I can say them even now. Um, I try to say them. I will try to say them. Um, like Emerson said, speak now in hard words what you think today. And if you change your mind tomorrow, you know, say it in hard words again, <laughs> even <laughs> if it contradicts everything you said huh. the day before. I kind of hmm. maybe get into trouble with that. But but I, um, I am... I, I was just thinking the other day, um, maybe because this was coming, this interview was coming up, that I am kind of trying to say the same things that I was, um, you know, ten or eleven years ago when my first book came out, or twelve years ago, and um, I think I have more tools and more experience to say them now, and. Um, I think my next book, when I finish The Eels, I'm going to propose a book about um, the sort of history of naming nature, the, the working title oh, that's is good. Mm-hmm. Naming Nature, The Nature of Naming, Why We Name, How We Name, Traveling with People Who Are Obsessed About Naming Nature, The Nature of the Zoo or the Natural History Museum, mm-hmm. the repositories for dead nature and living nature, mm-hmm. um, that we try to consolidate nature into why we do it, um, why we're not comfortable with embracing the unknown 
in the West as much as they are in the East. Um, uh, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. I don't know really why I sort of question these things. But I, I, I want to say them not only in writing but in visually. Um, right. I've been sort of struggling with, with that because um, I don't want to be too sort of didactic about it but I um maybe just painting what I see is is enough of an expression um of of spirit and faith um huh. but um yeah I don't, I'm I'm trying to say the same things I think that I was um when I started my professional writing and painting career hmm. um but this is that's great um I kind of I I want to ask you um, to tell me a story. Um, you know, we can have readings from your writing in the body of the show, and you have mm. told stories. But mm-hmm. if I just think, you know, just think about these great themes that you that you do keep revisiting, that you talked about in terms of fishing and then painting, and now the eels, and yeah, and just tell me something that's <clears throat> happened to you lately that that expresses the that magic has, or the yeah, or that has then taken your sense of these things somehow. Further or challenge them. I don't know. Um, okay, how long can I ramble? <laughs> you can ramble as long as you want. <laughs> um, well, like I was saying before, the this eel thing has kind of changed my worldview. I I never I didn't really question the 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 Western science mindedness of myself until I I was introduced to. Um, the uh, importance of eels in 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 um, in New Zealand by a friend of mine who is a screenwriter in Santa Monica, and he lived in New Zealand for 20 years, and he was married to a Maori woman. He had a child there, and then he left. And but he made a lot of friends, and he knew a lot of stories. And he's and I would, I had already had a contract for the book, and he said, "Hey, have you heard about the sacred eels in New Zealand?" And I said, "No." And and he said, "Well, eels are sort of like." Um, sacred there (laughs) and um so i went down and he introduced me to some uh uh, to this guy and specifically this bush guide named daniel joe who goes by the name dj and um he um and dj's girlfriend nikki had a cousin whose name was stella who was writing her (laughs) um master's thesis at waikato university in hamilton about the migration of baby eels from the ocean on her tribal river, the Tukituki River, um, where she grew up, and she's a Maori woman. So, so Stella, um, I asked, or they asked for me if, if Stella, if she would sort of be my guide through New Zealand, um, introducing me to to elder Maori people or any Maori people who had stories about eels. Turns out they all have stories about eels. Eels are possibly <laughs> the most important creature in their spiritual system. The eel replaces the snake. I mean, if you yeah. read Joseph Campbell or whatever, he'll tell you that the the stories where the snake plays the role of the monster seducer or the guardian, uh, these sort of dualistic roles trickle down from India and Indonesia through the islands of the Pacific. Um, and when um, when the snake was no longer native, it was the the symbol was replaced by the nearest counterpart, which was the eel. And the eel became important to the people. Why this? Why this sort of creature is 
is, as I said before, inspires fear and awe and reverence. I don't know. I mean, but it seems to, um, that seems to be sort of a universal thing the world over. But anyway, um, I spent time with these uh, Maori people who were very reluctant, um, and I don't blame them, to share their traditional stories. Um, It'd be like going to a a master carpenter knocking on his door and saying, teach me everything you know, um, you know, that you've learned in your whole life. Stories aren't just, like, taken for granted there. Um, Stories to these people are their energy, like they flow in and out of you. You don't just share them with anybody. They choose to, they choose very carefully who they share their stories with, usually to um, a younger person of their choosing before they die. And they pass on their knowledge. And if they don't find that person who they feel they should pass their knowledge to, then they would rather die with it than than share their stories. Um, anyway, um, I what I learned down there, too, is that um, the people were... Stella, this, this woman who was sort of my guide down there, was saying that she'd studied science as, a, as an undergraduate and fish biology, and she's she was interested in nature because of her father and her father died in a fishing accident hmm. and um she um she was at this eel conference in the south island of new zealand and this this guy don jellyman the scientist was trying to tag these giant eels put a like a tracer on them to find where they go to spawn in the ocean nobody's ever found the spawning place of the the freshwater eels in New Zealand they spawn like 2000 miles off the coast or something but hmm. no one no one they disappear once they leave um freshwater to spawn and they can live for a long time like 100 years or something I didn't know that's um, fascinating yeah but anyway so yeah it's, Stella was saying that this guy Don Jellyman was giving a presentation about that you know the the Japanese government had invested in these tags they cost about twenty thousand dollars a piece to put on these big eels, and they were they were sending out fifteen tagged eels to try to trace them to the spawning grounds, and there was like this uproar among the Maori people hmm. in the audience who said, "Why do you need to know where they go? We've known for many generations that when the eels are ready to spawn, they leave fresh water for the ocean, and um, we don't." bother them once they leave to their house where they breed um but the western scientists have this craving to know and what i what i took away from all that was that these people were comfortable with not knowing they were um they were comfortable with embracing the unknown instead of trying to explain it and um and i think i identified that with that because as an artist i think as a as a painter um, I'm sort of embracing the unknown a little bit, or I think that's what artists do. Hmm. It might be why they a lot of them go crazy, <laughs> because it's it's hard to deal with what hasn't been categorized and what hasn't been controlled, and with um, namelessness and. Um, but anyway, I don't. Hmm. I forgot hmm. where I was hmm. going with all that. Okay, all right. <laughs> but I I can tell a more succinct story, maybe. Um, um, if you want but, to, but well, yeah. well. Anyway, the what uh, what else I wanted to say about their stories is these and these Western ethnographers, mostly British, went around trying to um, 
record these traditional stories and um, stuff, stories that you read in like Joseph Campbell's work or something. Right, right. Um, and they they treated them kind of as as primitive stories because maybe they didn't have a really sophisticated arc or something. But when I spend time with these people, I I realize that the stories can't really be taken out of the place where right. they're told. They're they're endemic. I mean, they're there's they're meant to be told in the theater of nature. Um, in the dark a lot of the times with all the sounds around and if if you write down an oral story like that it's it may be slightly beautiful architecturally like the exoskeleton of a lobster but there's no life in it left hmm. and um we we may i mean writing down a, an oral story like that in 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 the fact is is kind of doomed to be a failure um so i'd i'd gone over there sort of reading a lot of these stories that these Western people have written down, and they're kind of dry and dull and read-like kind of genealogies. But when you hear them in the in the um, atmosphere that they were meant to be told and where they came from, they're really um, kind of magical and um, and really sort of sophisticated stories. Right. Um, but the sophisticated arc that's there would only be apparent. In context, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. There, you use that word magical again. <laughs> yeah. Um, but those are some things I've been thinking about. Yeah. Okay. Well, this has been great, and it's been a lot of fun. Good. Yeah, me too. I, I hope you have enough stuff. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we have enough stuff. We have enough but stuff. I, I think we'll make something really beautiful out of this. It's always fun, and I always learn a lot when I'm forced to think about stuff. Mm, yeah. But um, but I, I really appreciate the opportunity and if you need any um stuff yeah i i have you know recordings of people telling stories or even you know in in pompeian or in in the native languages or whatever whatever you think might be interested in or songs of mine or (laughs) yeah no we will we'll be coming back to you for that um yeah i don't know who you've been emailing with uh, Colleen, Colleen yeah, think, Colleen yeah. will come back to you, and I, I think we'd like a lot of that actually, because we, well, as you, you may have seen our website, we have a pretty great website, and um, yeah, that's wonderful. Yeah, and we'll do, we'll make our little work of art out of this, and I look forward yeah, to it, um, and we'll let you know. Um, I think we're going to produce it pretty quickly, and and we'll let you know when it's on the radio, but you'll also know when it's online, and you know, a lot of people podcast the show. Yeah, that's so, that's yeah. wonderful. Yeah. Um, so you think a couple of weeks or something? I or, think so. Or? I think so. Okay. I don't know exactly how that's playing out, but we'll let you know exactly when we've got it set. Great. Okay. Thank you. I love well, what you're doing. I'm glad you're in the world. I love what you're doing. I'm glad you're in the world. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but thank you very much and hope to see you guys yeah. one day. Yeah, take care. Okay. Bye.